John chapter 4. This is God's word which has the power to change lives. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you as we start Uncomfortable Number 2. Um, let's pray together. Our loving Father, we pray those words that we looked at last week where the Lord Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 8 and says, Consider, therefore, carefully how you listen. We pray that as we hear your voice this morning that you would show us how life-transforming our relationship with you is and show us how that enriches and deepens our relationships with one another. So we pray that you would show us that from this passage now. Amen. Great, well if uh, you're joining us this week and weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Uncomfortable Growth. It kind of laid a foundation for this whole series. Um, you can download it off our website. Um, but today we're thinking about uncomfortable relationships. Uh, but if you remember back to last week, we were thinking a bit about the discomfort of being in a growing church. Lots of wonderful things going on, but lots of things that make us uncomfortable. And I showed you um, a picture like this that talks about as a church grows, it goes through sort of different stages. And those stages, if they're not looked after, if we don't think carefully about how we relate to each other through those stages, um, discomfort and the growth that comes with change in a church can make us feel concerned and can lead to conflict if it's unchecked and then to chaos. And so we thought about the challenge of a growing church. We also thought about the most dangerous word that we can speak in the Christian life and the most dangerous word in the church. This word, I. The danger of making personal preference our priority over and above what is best for our common good. And so we ended with this kind of summary last week. The reminder that this church is not ours, it's God's. Uh, the question of are we being led by what God wants to do here? Uh, and therefore the key for all of us as a church is not so much what we do next. Is it start another service or plant a new church or something different? Uh, the key is who do we look to? And then we finish by reminding each other and that encouragement that we all matter to God. This is a family and every person who's here really matters to God and to the future of this church. Uh, we all really, really matter. And so today as we look at uncomfortable relationships, number two in our five-part series, um, we're going to see, as I'm sure we perhaps already experienced, that relationships, particularly relationships in the church, are often uncomfortable. Now some of you, as you see this title of a talk, will be utterly thrilled. You'll be saying, finally, someone's talking about something that's going to help us to be more real with each other. We're very middle class in this church. It's all very neat and tidy, and I long for there to be a sense of people being more real. Some of you are thinking that inside. Some of you aren't thinking that. Some of you, if you're honest, are saying, actually, there's nothing worse than any subject that touches anywhere remotely close to something that's a bit touchy-feely. You're the sort of people who hate being hugged in life, and therefore hate this kind of a subject. Well, consider some of the relationships that we have in church life. There's a grid here, and I want to explain these to you. You could fill each of these boxes with a different person. Let's have some fun. 
we'll all have in the church someone who we find a little bit awkward. They might be someone who has slightly bad breath. They might be someone who invades our personal space. And as they step a step closer, you step back a step. And eventually you find your backs against the wall. And so you're looking for someone to come and rescue you. It happens to all of us. It might just be someone that you just find really difficult to talk to because they're just super different to you. Then think of a person that you might have history with. It might be someone who's hurt you last week, last month, maybe many, many years ago. Someone who's perhaps disappointed you. But just someone that if if you're honest with yourself, you know there's someone you've got a bit of history with. And you're kind of in the church with them, but it's just awkward. Relationship with this person's uncomfortable. Uh, Think about the person who always asks you, how are you? You kind of love this person because they're always watching out for you, but you sort of sometimes avoid them because it's just difficult always asking, being asked how you're doing. You you love them because they care, but sometimes it can be too much. Think of the sort of person where you kind of make a beeline to your Bezzy, your best friend, every week. You see them at church, forget everybody else here. That's the person I love hanging out with, and that's the person I always go and talk to straight after a sermon. We've all got one of them, and that's a wonderful thing. Because we've got like a, a best friend, hopefully, in the church. Uh, think about one of the pastors or one of the elders. You might have a very strong relationship with this person, been deeply helped by them. You might have been deeply hurt by them. Perhaps a bit of both. That's a relationship that will be, to different people, uncomfortable, perhaps. And then think of the person who's kind of anonymous. The person you see on a Sunday who you always see across the way. But if you're honest, you've been here for weeks, months, maybe years, but you've never really had a good chat. And the harder, the problem is that the more weeks that go by, it almost gets harder to say hello. Because you saw them walk in the church years ago and you've really never stepped towards them. Different caricatures, but as you look at those pictures on the screen, we all have different relationships with one another in the church. And here's the astonishing thing. God chooses to bring us all together. We looked at this verse from 1 Peter last week, that we're being built together in him. And one of the messages we thought about last week is that because this is a theological truth, that we're coming together to be a family, you matter. Yes, even the person here who says, I'm insignificant and no one cares about me, you matter to God. But the problem that presents for us is if you matter to God, guess what? That person who is uncomfortable to relate to matters to God too. Which creates for all of us uncomfortable relationships in a church. Now why do we have uncomfortable relationships? Not just in the church, but in life. It's because we have imperfect relationships. Consider uh, this scripture from the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think that's a statement far more about their dress sense in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a statement that talks about a sense of harmony and freedom and joy and unity when they were completely at ease with each other. But then look at the following verse that comes in Genesis chapter 3 when man and woman turn their back on God and that relationship with God is broken and it leads to disordered, uncomfortable relationships with each other. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, not so much a statement of their fashion sense but more a sense of the humiliation and the isolation and the shame that is felt in a relationship. And so what do they do? They hide from each other. I think there are two massive sort of social phenomena that are going on in our culture at the moment. Uh, One is isolation, the other is shame. Let's try and unpick it for a little bit. 
Isolation. First of all, isolation. Some, for so many of us, our relationships with other people are uncomfortable because we actually, if we're honest, lack really authentic relationships. I sat in a pub with a friend of mine who's 40-something this last week, and we had a really honest heart-to-heart chat, and then he burst into tears, and he said, I have never in my life had a conversation like that with another man. We were just being honest and talking about life. But he'd never had that kind of friendship with anybody where they could just be real and talk about stuff that matters. He says, we talk about the football, we talk about our families, we never talk about us. This was a grown man in tears because he'd never experienced authentic relationships. Let me read to you an article from the Daily Telegraph from November 2011. I read this back in 2011. It shocked me, so I filed it away, and we're using it here today, eight years on. It was an article that talked about the huge absence of community across the UK. Okay, so it's not specifically here talking about the church, but it still illustrates something. The reporter says this, Community spirit has almost disappeared, with fewer people prepared to look out for their neighbours or ask them for help. It underlines the fears that the concept has been outdated, with only 6% of people agreeing that their neighbourhood had a strong sense of community. 70% admitted that they did not even know their neighbours' names. I suspect that might have got worse across the country. Uh, Or something more recent, I came across recently the BBC who ran what they called their loneliness experiment. Now, can anyone guess who they worked out were the the loneliest people in British culture today? Elderly. The elderly. Second most lonely people, according to this survey, was those who were unwell. Third most lonely was those who were bereaved. Often, those groupings could be all in the same person. That's a real challenge to the younger generation who sometimes, perhaps, have become so selfish and inward-looking and so busy, perhaps even workaholics, that there's no time for the older generation. It's a real challenge, isn't it? The elderly, the ill, the bereaved. Any ideas what the fourth category is of the most isolated people in British culture today? This might shock you. 16 to 24 year olds in a culture that is so proud and precious of of kind of social media and connection 16 to 24 year olds are some of the most unconnected people in fact 55,000 people in that age bracket were interviewed by the BBC in the UK 40% of them said I'm often or very often lonely shocking isn't it came across this, this is now America, but I came across an American who did some research recently called, um, and the book uh, that wrote up this research was called You Lost Me. He was looking at the lack of social connection, particularly for people in the 16 to 25 year old bracket, um, but he was specifically focusing in on church. And these were just a few things. I read this report, it's quite a lengthy book, but it was really interesting. Here's just a few things I draw, drew out of it. Nearly 50, this is America, so um, slightly different context to ours, but the illustration I think still stands. 50% of young people in American churches say they've got no meaningful relationship with an adult. It's why intergenerational mixing in church is utterly vital. And if we have vibrant youth programs that only ever segregate young people into young people's groups, it's hugely detrimental to their spiritual walk later on in life. It's a massive challenge. Second thing I observed, they said that in this age bracket, there were a lot of young people who had great width to their relationships, but not a lot of depth. 
And partly that's created by this kind of social media um, context, using Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat. There's this ability to kind of communicate with a vast number of people. Great width, but no real depth. Lots of those relationships aren't actually that meaningful. There's this sense of being able to portray on social media a side of myself that I want people to see and hide the side of myself I don't want people to see. There's this ability with social media to know an awful lot about another person's life without ever having to even talk to them. (laughs) How convenient. But it leads to great isolation. And actually, this thing that should be connecting people is actually causing people to become increasingly distant from each other. Isolated, ashamed, and very, very lonely. Third observation from this book, lots of families actually have very little time together. This is Christian families. And the shock that so many Christian families have little or no devotional time ever together. Tragic. And then the fourth one that was a little bit more general was saying that actually for so many of these young people, Sunday is the most lonely day of the week. The day that should be about family coming together. Maybe when we come to our service, we're together, if relationships are real. But what about the rest of the day? Sunday is sometimes the most isolating day for so many people. So there's isolation. And the other issue was that of shame. This sense of relationships being uncomfortable because I fear that if I'm really real with you or you're really real with me, the real me will be exposed. See, deep down, don't you and I have a real longing to be real? Real with each other. And yet the reality is often we're not real. Why? Because if I'm real with you, it will expose my weaknesses. It will expose my perceived sense of identity. I will show you my vulnerabilities. I will show you my failures. And because I don't want you to see these things, I'm not real with you. Being real with each other is costly, isn't it? And so do you know what we always do, all of us, in different ways, whether we're conscious of this or subconscious, we put on a mask. And what you see of me or I see of you isn't the real you, it's the side of you you want to portray that doesn't often show many weaknesses or vulnerabilities. Genesis 3, they realized they were naked, exposed, so they hid. And in Christian circles, even in this church, we can be professionals at putting on a mask and hiding from each other. Do you realize this? We can come together on church on Sunday morning and actually spend the whole time we're together hiding the real us from other people. Because relationships make us uncomfortable. And here's the problem with it. If you're a person who puts on a mask all the time, it's exhausting, isn't it? Because the, you, the me that everyone sees isn't necessarily the me. But more than just being exhausting for me... It's also very dangerous for me because when I wear this mask all the time, it almost becomes normal to me. And I become used to being the person behind the mask rather than the real me. I was reflecting on this this week, but perhaps you could do this. Ask yourself this question. After church on a Sunday, when you converse with other people, how much of you do you actually share? It's perfectly possible to have an awful lot of conversation after a service, but not really share anything of yourself. We can talk about what we've done in the week, what we're going to do in the week. We can talk about something out there, all to avoid having to talk about anything in here. And this is why last week I said, listen, being uncomfortable is not about going faster and going harder. Sometimes it's about slowing down, perhaps having less relationships or less conversations, maybe on a Sunday, so that some of the conversations we have are a bit bit deeper and a bit more real. So we don't want to be a church 
where people come here and fit in. Seek to be someone they're not really because that's the kind of culture and that's how they feel most comfortable. We don't want to be a church where people fit in. We want to be a church where people belong. And you'll feel like you belong in a church where you can just come to the church however you are and people accept you just as you are. Being real, you see, is about our exterior reflecting our interior. And I'm not sure that we're often that good at it. And because relationships like this that are real make us uncomfortable, and because sometimes they, it costs us having relationships like this, often we hold this sort of a relationship at a distance, and our, super, our relationships end up being actually quite superficial. And it leads to further isolation and shame. Well, there's a bit of a diagnosis of some of the problems in our culture, isolation and shame, and perhaps, at least at times, our experience may be in church Though I hope that we're doing a bit better, perhaps, than the world outside. But how do we respond to uncomfortable relationships? The key is having a transformed heart. So if you just turn up that passage we had read earlier, we're going to look again at that amazing story where Jesus encounters this woman at the well. John chapter 4. Let me read some of the story again. Jesus comes to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph's Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. There's a picture of Israel. You've got northern Israel in the north. Galilee, you've got southern Israel, Judea in the south, and in the middle you've got Samaria. It's where the Samaritans came from and lived. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and never mixed with them. If you were traveling from Galilee to Judea, you wouldn't go straight through Samaria. You'd often walk around, much, much longer journey, more costly, more tiring. But you walked around to avoid people. Probably the reason why this woman, maybe, is coming to the well at midday to take her water. She's hiding from people. Not just maybe some Jews who happen to be in Samaria. She's also hiding from her own people, and we'll find out why in the middle. But she comes in the middle of the day to avoid people. But here's a woman who is a perfect example of both isolation and shame. And then Jesus incredibly breaks all convention by going up to a stranger and speaks to her. And he speaks of her as she's drawing water from the well and says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks this water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus exposes both her isolation and her shame. Go, call your husband and come back, verse 16. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you've got no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Talk about being isolated and ashamed. It's just got worse. Jesus exposed her for who she is. And now that she's ashamed and she's isolated, you'd expect her to run a mile, wouldn't you? And of course, that's what happens. No, it's not. Surprisingly, she doesn't run a mile. She doesn't do a Genesis 3. Realize that she's naked, so hide. What does she do? Verse 28, she leaves her water jar. She goes back to the town and says to all the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So I'm sure quite a few people in this town of Sikar knew about this woman. Maybe she had a bit of a reputation for being a bit loose. 
husband here, boyfriend there, and it kept on changing. Maybe she just was a bit hopeless at relationships, and she just couldn't sort of hold one down, and she was a bit uh, hopeless in that sense. We don't know much about her, it's speculation. But we can be pretty sure that she would have been isolated and very, very ashamed, even in the town where she lived. And that would have only got worse when Jesus explained to her everything about herself that she thought perhaps he, the stranger, would not have known. But of course he did know. So here's a million dollar question. How does this isolated and ashamed woman, drawing water from this well, embrace uncomfortable relationships? First with this man Jesus that she's never met. And then with the people of her town who probably shunned her most of the time anyway because of her past. She could embrace that uncomfortable relationship because she received in Jesus an acceptance that was bigger than her rejection. Think about last week when we talked about this church being a church that is being built together to be a family. And Paul there was talking to Timothy, who was leading the church in Ephesus. And that same church in Revelation chapter 2 had a message spoken to them through John by God saying, you have forsaken your first love. Why, friends, does it matter so much that we do not forsake our first love of Jesus? The answer is because his is the verdict on our life that's the only one that really matters. And when you meet Jesus, you meet someone who accepts you for who you are. And his acceptance of you runs far deeper than any rejection that you could ever face. And strangely, and we don't even understand quite how this happened, this woman in this moment of deep isolation and shame found that even though that isolation and shame was exposed by Jesus, there was something about, I don't know, the look he gave her or the way that he spoke to her that meant that she felt accepted by him when she was expecting to be rejected by him. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus doesn't see you and me in our isolation and our shame and walk at a distance like the Jews would have walked around Samaria. He comes towards us. And this is the most astonishing thing about the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ looks at you and when your life is all together, he says, I love you. And when your life's falling apart, he says, I love you. And when you're doing really great and you're serving him, he says, I love you. And when you've mucked up again, he says, I love you. And when you meet this person, Jesus, you meet someone who accepts you. And that acceptance will always run deeper than any rejection. That the world might reject you or your own rejection of yourself even. Think about isolation and shame and think about the gospel. What does Jesus do when he meets us in our isolation? You get a wonderful picture of it in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son, he's gone off. He's gone wayward. He comes to his senses. He comes back. And what do we read? The father ran towards him and threw his arms around him. How does Jesus respond to you in your isolation when you were far off rejecting him? He runs after you. He pursues you in love and he throws his arms around you. And he meets you in your isolation like he meets me in mine. And he embraces you with an acceptance that runs deeper than your rejection. How does Jesus Christ in the gospel cover our shame? 
Romans 5.8, whilst we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And you meet in Jesus one whose acceptance of you and of me is deeper than the rejection that we'll feel from the shame of our life for all the wrong that we've done. And so you get this wonderful verse in the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul speaks and he calls the church in Rome and says, accept one another then as Christ has accepted you. Well, how has he accepted me? He's accepted me in my isolation. And he's accepted me in my shame. And he's done the same for so many here. And for some who are here who haven't yet trusted in Christ, he will accept you in your isolation. And he will accept you in your shame. If you'll let him, if you open the door of your heart to him, as his spirit moves in your heart, will you respond? We're going to watch a little video now. It's just a couple of minutes long. It's by an American who wrote a book called Uncomfortable that inspired some of the thinking behind this series. And he talks about the church now. How do we respond to this sense of shame and isolation in the church? Let's have a look at this. So just a couple of things that um, were spoken of in that video. The next uh, slide comes up. He challenged us to lean into the local church, even though it's awkward and uncomfortable. And then at the end, he said, what we want in a church isn't necessarily what we need in a church. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But as we looked at last week, not just growth that's uncomfortable, so too relationships that are uncomfortable They help us to grow spiritually. So here are three questions just to reflect on as we close. And let's uh, come back to our little grid because then there can be a name behind the box here for you. And we've all got uncomfortable relationships in the church. Three questions for you. Ask yourself this. Do I love my idea of church more than I love the church I'm a part of? See, embracing true community, maybe embracing this community will be costly and it will be uncomfortable. Why? Because there are lots of imperfect people in this church. We all are. So how do we ever think we're going to find a perfect church when it's full of imperfect people? It's impossible. But as I learn to love people who I find awkward, as I learn to love people I might have a bit of history with, as I learn to step towards that anonymous person I've not yet sought to love, I learn to love more deeply. If the church is just full of people who are just like me, who it's really easy to love, I'm never going to learn to love. I'm just going to have a good time. But it leads to our spiritual growth. The alternative is just to pursue this kind of individualistic Christianity. If I get something out of church, I'll go. And if I don't, I'll go somewhere else. And we need to repent if that's our attitude because we won't grow spiritually. Imperfect people make imperfect churches. And we've got to step towards it. So do I love my idea of church more than I love the church I'm a part of? Secondly, will I step towards an uncomfortable relationship in this church so that I can grow? Uh, reading for, for this series, um, I've come across a book I read ages ago by John Ortberg. It's really interesting and it does exactly what it says on the title. Everybody's normal until you get to know them. Really good book, because it just talks about uncomfortable relationships. But because I like that, I found his later book, which he's only just written. And this is brilliant as well. I read this a few weeks ago. I'd like you more if you were more like me. But I need to ask him to write a sequel, which is this. Will I grow as much if you're more like me? Brilliant book. And it speaks just into this. 
See, uncomfortable relationships teach us about God's love for us. Why? Because when you think about a person after this service, that now you've been challenged, you're going to step towards an uncomfortable relationship. When it's uncomfortable and that relationship is difficult, guess what it will do to you? It will show you more about how God loves you. Because God loves you when you're uncomfortable. And he loves you when you're a pain, just like they're a pain. He loves me when I'm a pain, just like they're a pain. But more than just teaching us about how God loves us, it will actually teach us more about us. It will help us grow in self-awareness. Why? Because say you find me really difficult and a relationship with me is really uncomfortable. As you therefore step towards that relationship with me that makes you uncomfortable, hopefully it will get you asking yourself this question, how does Mark find me uncomfortable and awkward? And you grow in your self-awareness through an uncomfortable relationship with me and I can do exactly the same with you. So do I love my idea of church more than I love the church that God has brought me to? Will I intentionally step towards an uncomfortable relationship so that I might grow through it? And then thirdly, who do I know who's isolated and who could I therefore intentionally walk towards this week? See, a great deal of pastoral care in the church can happen when we're just more intentional in our care for each other. And sometimes... It's the people who are most isolated that actually lead to the most uncomfortable relationships. And they're the very people that we need to step towards. I love Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. It speaks of God and says, he is the father to the fatherless. And then it goes on and says, God sets the lonely in families. And friends, this is what this church is and needs to keep working at being. A family where the lonely isolated and ashamed person, whether it's somebody out there or whether it's you sitting here this morning, can feel at home. Of course, growth is uncomfortable. Of course, relationships are uncomfortable. But as we seek to respond to both, it's not somebody else's responsibility, it's our responsibility. It's not easy, it's costly. But as we embrace these two things, uncomfortable growth and uncomfortable relationships... And we will grow spiritually. But of course, in order to do either of those things, we need to pray for that transformed heart. And that's only what the cross of Jesus can bring. Which is why it's very fitting that we're going to turn to the Lord's table now and reflect on those words from Romans chapter 15. Accept one another then, as Christ has accepted you to bring praise to God. Thank you.